you're live with AJ and Aaron. And Matthew. No, you're live with us. What? We were interviewing you oh. about you. Oh. And your influences. I got it. Your hermeneutic. That's not a number. Like, who's calling me? That's a Minnesota number. I know, but it's like wow. it's like a nobody. Yeah. Well, usually, usually the nobody numbers I get are from Indiana, since that's where my phone yeah. number is from. Oh, so that would be even more. Yeah, generally I don't to believe that that's. Well, generally I don't get junk numbers from here, but I'm, I don't. I don't. Maybe know, it's someone calling it. about your student loan. Yeah, what's up with that? Do I not have to pay? I think it'll just be taken off your account if you don't have to pay, but I don't know that anyone has determined that. Biden can actually do what he said he's doing. (laughs) So no one's removed anything because probably like anyone in the government who's dealing with money says, we hope this doesn't happen and we don't want to forgive these loans until we know like we we must. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if they do it, I'll be like, whatever. I can't stop them, but I wouldn't have like asked for it. I mean, it's kind of how I felt about the COVID money that we all got, where it was like, oh, you're going to put 1200 bucks in my account? Right. Like, I'm not going to stop that from happening. Also, I don't know if this is a great idea, <laughs> but if everyone's getting it, I want it too. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't going to give it back, but... I mean, we all are giving it back in various ways. Well, right, we're spending it. I mean, so, yeah. So that helped. Matthew, what are, what were you going to say? Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast, week 36, walking on water with Jesus this week, uh, even though we're no longer in the Gospels. I just felt like saying that. Um, if you hear other random background noise, I just wanted to let everybody know that uh, our other bishop, Joshua, is in the room next to us doing a ping pong ministry, um, and sometimes they get a little loud. So if you hear some excitement or pinging or ponging, that's what's going on. But uh, there are fellow believers being built up in the Lord as they play ping pong. Yeah, and this is, this is a great opportunity to mention our formal ping pong ministry that we hear, have here at Resurrection Church, along with a lot of other ministries that we have, um, including our lawn mowing ministry, it's a great um, our Panera ministry, our podcast ministry, the brewery ministry that we're going to be starting soon. Hallelujah. You know, I don't think that's in the works, but um glad that maybe is other organic ministries take shape. Maybe that's one of them. I, I don't know. So we continue in Job. <laughs> uh, in the old t- what? I don't know. Oh. AJ was looking at me like I threw him under the bus. I don't know. This is... We're still in Job. We're, we're, we're in Job. We're still... Now, are you sure pretty- that are you sure it's pronounced Job and not Job? I'm not sure how it's pronounced. Me either. We can pronounce it however we want. It's not a I real think, person, right? Well, <laughs> I think traditionally it's been pronounced Job. So we pick up uh, back in Job, about right in the middle of it, and man, there's still a lot of discussion with Job, his friends. I don't don't know what to make of this. There's still a lot of back and forth. They are pretty convinced, for the most part, that he's in the wrong or he's done something wrong, and Job is essentially, you know, sticking to his story. 
I don't know what what AJ. What amazing thoughts did you have from these? I I, I mean, I have a few thoughts. I guess a little bit later on, but I, the first few chapters. Anything? Not for the first few chapters. I think it gets interesting when we get to chapter twenty-eight. Yeah. Is it kind of is a different chapter? It's different feel to it when you're reading through. It's not a it's not a response or an accusation or you know like the headings in the Bible where it'll be you know that's helpful. It'll say you know Bill Dad's speech and then Job's response and Job's whatever on this. So chapter twenty eight is interesting. So I think there's a lot to talk about there about about wisdom and since we're in wisdom literature, I think it's a good chapter where we have a lot to talk about. But like I'm still waiting for God to come and start talking, and that's you know I'm just I'm looking forward to that. But we're not there yet. We we yeah. end our reading ends right before that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and then what? What, what are you? One thing. This is one thing. Yeah. Your question. What? What? I'm I'm a little bit perplexed Ooh. that we skipped over a lot of stuff. No. Oh. Are are you suggesting that Job is not the speaker in chapter twenty eight? No, but it has a different feel to it. Like I know that all of it is poetry, right? Okay. But it seemed like there were like speeches towards Job or Job responding to the friends. And this seems kind of like this let's talk about wisdom, like this. I don't know. It seemed it had a different feel when I read it. Okay. I don't yeah. know how to say it. Nice. I'm not totally disagreeing with you. I just was I being too like this is not the same. I wasn't saying that well, it wasn't. Yeah. I mean, I don't I, think you're saying anything wrong. Just I, that I don't agree with it. There's well, no, there's debate about whether or not it's should have been included or the narrator steps in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying that that's what's happening. I'm saying there's a lot of interesting things to talk about. Yeah, I think so. Maybe that's why I'm feeling perplexed is because there's so much to talk about and because I only have my impressions of it as well, which is that Job is continuing his same sort of angsty, somewhat whiny lament. Uh, Yeah, I kind of wanted to go into that a little bit more. And even in chapter 27 at the beginning of it, um, I mean, he's, he's holding to his story of, I didn't do anything wrong, I'm righteous. But he says, as God lives, who has taken away my right and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter. Well, he's like kind, like he's maintaining his innocence and somewhat maintaining his faithfulness to God. But then at the same time, he's got like a terrible attitude. I don't know. I don't know what to think about it. It's like, he's probably right, but he's kind of, I don't know, at this point, not a very likable character or something like that. Because especially later on, uh, you know, everybody that's kind of falsely saying, well, you had, to do, you had to have done something wrong. You're just wrong or you're lying about this or something. Uh, the way they talk about him, they're kind of like, he's not a very likable guy. I don't know. Did you guys get that feeling? No, I don't think so. Oh, okay. Like Job? Yeah. You I, like him I, still? I'm kind of getting a little tired of him. You're tired of him? <laughs> I, I understand that, but I think I've already given him the benefit of the doubt. Oh, and I feel for him because I know in the end he's not going to get the answers that he wants. And so... Spoiler alert. Oh, sorry. Spoiler <laughs> alert. But that's what happens for all of us in suffering. Like, we we trust God and... I don't know. Should we, Do you want to 
should we read a study Bible study note and then you want to respond to that and be like, this is why I don't agree with that? Sure. Read your Bible study note. Okay. I don't know. Maybe Matthew's is better. I didn't read any of this before. Where? So talking about chapter 28, it says this section is a self-contained speech. No speaker is listed, so it could be a continuation of the preceding words, either Job's or Zophar's note. However, some consider this a poetic interlude by the author of Job that sums up the argument to this point, emphasizing the failure of human wisdom and lays the foundation for the Lord's speech. So that goes either, that one does either way. It's like, it might be Job, but some people also think that. Yeah. And I, okay, this is, this would be my response, my critical response to that note. The first is that other times the narrator has, narrator has interjected himself. He's made it clear through phrases like, here end Job's words. Um, that's not the case in the introduction to chapter 28. So in chapter 31, 40, the words of Job are concluded, and there's no one introduced between um, chapter 27 or 26, where Job replies to Bildad, and uh, the declaration of the end of Job's words in 31 when Elihu comes in. So I don't know that it makes sense to me that throughout we've had a narrator who will make clear when someone is speaking and isn't speaking to interject a summary statement setting up God's words, mm-hmm. this you know Yahweh speaking, when there's still another human speaker, not to mention Job, prior to that. You so know, the beginning of 29, it says Job continues speaking. So is in it the just headings, talking about 20? Yeah. Yeah, so in the CSB, we have the heading in chapter 26, Job's reply to Bildad. And then yeah. we're given a heading in chapter 28, a hymn to wisdom. But in the CSB, that could be Job's hymn to wisdom. You know, it doesn't indicate who's speaking. It doesn't say the narrator's hymn to wisdom. And then... Uh, chapter 29, the header is Job's final claim of innocence. That runs all the way through uh, till Elihu comes in in chapter 32. So I don't think that these headings, these are not headings like the Psalter headings. And it's just, and Job kept on saying. Sure. All the way through 27 and 28 and into start of 29. Now Job kept on saying. You know, so so this phrase, Job continued his discourse He's responding, and then in 27, it's no longer a response to Bildad. It's something else, human wisdom. And then in 28, we're talking about God, or yeah, God's wisdom. And then he starts talking about something else. And so it's indicating content change, like a a different speech or a different. Yeah, but there's no shift in 28.1, for example, where you would expect there to be a shift if you're sure. saying this is something different. Wisdom yeah. is being talked about in 27 and in 28. Yeah. Well, wisdom and wickedness and all of these things are really interrelated. Right. So, if, uh, if I may interject yeah, really please. quickly, um, I think you're both right. I was just trying to understand what he was saying. I wasn't on an, uh, the other yeah. side of something. Well, oh, so okay. I'm trying to say that those indications or the lines of Job continued his discourse, those aren't indicating a break in his discourse before. 
And where you would expect that to appear, if 28 is something totally separate, you'd expect that line there, and it's not there. There are no chapters and verses in the original text, so 27 and 28 are all going to be kind of smushed together. So if they were trying to set that aside, you'd expect a line, Job said, or Job continued his discourse, Mm -hmm. or Job turned his attention to wisdom. Right. You know, none of that's there. That's all I'm... So I'm trying to respond to that study Bible note yeah. saying, I don't think it's correct. Yeah, I think that makes sense. So I think all Job is saying in, you know, 20... 27 in, Yeah, so Bill Dad in 25 says, look, humans are awful. You know, they're they're just worm, worm-like. Um, no one can be justified before God. So Job, you keep claiming that you're innocent. You're not. And Job defends his innocence again, and he keeps going all the way through. And it's like he's indicting all of his friends for lacking wisdom. So he's telling them, look, you keep saying I'm guilty, um, but this is actually how the wicked are, chapter 27. And wisdom, you don't have it. It's got to come from somewhere. There's got to be an answer to my problem. Where does it come from? Everything has a source. So where is wisdom's source? Ultimately, it's from God. So God is the only one who can judge whether or not I'm, I've been wicked or if I'm innocent. And this is my whole point. I, God isn't present for me to take my case to court. So stop making these judgments on me, friend. You're not wise. Mm-hmm. And then I think that uniquely will set up in chapter 32, Elihu, who says, hey, you guys are dumb because you haven't been able to disprove Job, but I can do it even though I'm younger than all of you. And Job, you're an idiot because you actually are sinful. You're not, you're, you're like not innocent, even though you think you are. So he's acting as if he is super wise and the hymn to wisdom, we might say in 28 highlights that this guy has not found wisdom either. That's my take. I appreciated his boldness. I don't, he probably wouldn't write, but he went for it. He took a stab. Which is at an appropriate time, too. It seemed like yeah, he, he was w- being respectful of yeah, the shoulders. He waited his turn. He also kind of made himself out to be the best of anyone there. A little bit self inflated view of himself. Yeah, he was. Um, and <laughs> Maybe but, he was a great guy. We don't know. Well, here's. Better here's, than those other three. Yeah. If you keep reading, Elihu goes all the way on, and then God responds. And says, 38 verse 2, who is... We weren't supposed to read that. I know, I know. But this is a judgment on Elihu, the supposedly wise guy. Who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? You know, it seems like God could be speaking to all of them combined. But Elihu is the one immediately prior to that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't have a lot of good things to say about Elihu. I think he's super arrogant and... One of those people who just would really annoy me in person because they'd be like, okay, I'm more humble than everyone and I'm wiser than everyone and I've waited my turn and now I'm going to jump in and set everyone straight even though he's not saying anything better. Like his arguments against Job are not any better than the guys who went before him. Right. What did you make of chapter 29 when Job was reminiscing about how great and amazing he used to be and life used Dude, to be. Some of my favorite verses were towards the end of 29. He's like, men, listen to me with expectation. 
waiting silently for my advice. After a word from me, they didn't speak again. My speech settled on them like dew. They waited for me as for the rain and opened their mouths as for spring showers. I smiled at them and they couldn't believe it. I think that's hilarious. Well, yeah, he's like, I gave them the time of day and it made their day. Right. And then in 30, where he's talking about how now they're mocking him. He's like, I would have refused to have put their fathers with my sheep dogs. It's 30 hey, verse one. Maybe, uh, maybe that's why all this is coming upon Job. He was too proud. I don't think he was too proud. He's just like Wait. talking poetically about how awesome his life was and how well-respected he was. And now yeah. no one cares about him. Well, sometimes that happens. Yeah, that's how I feel like every other week. Because one Sunday, everyone's listening to my sermon and being like, oh, that was such a great sermon. And then the next week, they're like, that was so bad. Do they say that? Who says that I'm, to you? I'm overstating things. I'm oh. trying to give an example of how someone could, like Job, could overstate things. And in one, sound really prideful. Everyone loved my sermon. And then the other one, sound overly mopey. Everyone hated, you know, no one liked my sermon. Everybody was scrolling. We all talked that way. Everybody yeah. was scrolling on their phone during my sermon. Yeah. Yeah, one week, everyone's attentive, <laughs> looking directly at me. And the next week, they're gazing at Instagram, flipping their way through, scrolling their way through. Yeah. Or checking. Flicking. I don't know. Yeah. Or checking what sports are on. I don't have social day. media, so I don't know how that stuff works. We still need to get you that shirt. I'm not on social media. I know. <laughs> or, I know. or just I'm not on Twitter. Ooh, one, yeah. one of those. I think that's better. Yeah. It's kind of funny. I want one for each social media platform. Just for what one you're Because there have to be day. like five social media platforms. So that would give me a t-shirt a day. Yeah. I'm not on TikTok. I'm not on... I don't know. What else are you not on? What's another thing? You're, MySpace. I don't have one I of think, those anymore. We need somebody significantly younger than us to help yeah, us what's, with what ones we're missing. I'm not on WhatsApp. Yeah. Is that... Oh, Snapchat? You're I'm not, not on, on Snapchat. Snapchat. There we go. Oh, yeah. Getting back to Job. Love it. He Job. didn't have time for his friend's advice because they were errant. Right. So I, I guess I want to point one thing out about the text and then give one comment about Job as a whole. Not Job as a half? Not Job as a half. Okay. My comment is that in Job 27.6, you guys have ESV... Can one of you read that first? I have NLT. Oh, yeah, I got it. Great. Can you read ESV, then you NLT? What is it? I got your ESV code. Job 27.6. 27.6. I hold fast my righteousness, and I will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. 27.6? Yes. In Job? Yep. Okay. I will maintain my innocence without wavering. My conscience is clear for as long as I live. Okay. And then the CSB, I will cling to my righteousness and never let go. My conscience will not accuse me as long as I live. So here's the point I want to make. Okay. Uh, there is no Hebrew word for conscience. There's the word heart that's used. The Greek word for conscience that we come across that Jesus never uses but shows up in the New Testament, as we'll talk about a little bit in 1 Corinthians, is like a Greco-Roman concept, though the um, experience of feeling guilty or not guilty extends beyond, but it's not always connected to the term conscience. In the Hebrew Bible, heart is the way you talk about it. So like when David felt guilty, his heart struck him. 
here, my heart will not accuse me. But because in our world, we think of our, like we think of having a conscience that renders moral verdicts about what we did in more free flowing translations or in translations trying to communicate in our language. They use the term conscience, even though that term isn't there. The reason I want to point this out is because there are different theories of ethics and virtue, and some of them put conscience at the center, and I think that's unhelpful. And I think the more that we plug in the term conscience, the more we reinforce that, and we lose the fact that we don't have a thing in us called the conscience that is involved in our moral reasoning. That's just a way of describing moral reasoning. Uh, But what should be at the center of our ethics is Christ and charity. That's what Jesus taught, of course, um, on, on loving God and loving neighbor hangs all the law and the prophets. So I, I just like pointing that out primarily because we're going to talk about conscience on Sunday. And I'm going, I was uh, like writing my notes saying there is no term for conscience in the old Testament. And then I read our Bible translation and came across the word conscience like, Oh no, did I majorly miss something? And then I looked it up, and it's just the word for heart. So now I'll have to clarify. Some Bible translations will translate the phrase heart as conscience, but there is no Hebrew term for conscience. Right. Right. That's a good distinction. The thing I wanted to say about Job as a whole, not as a half, is that what we're starting to see, even in that wisdom hymn that we just... I guess, somewhat argued about or tried to find clarity about. Um, The way that the Bible works is it has pixelated knowledge for us. So it doesn't give us a holistic, systematic theology manual for life, but it gives us different narratives that teach us different aspects of God's word and way and wisdom. And in books like Proverbs— it gives you wisdom for how life should be, how, how the general rules for daily life. So if you go in debt, you're the servant to the lender. Um, you know, don't reprove a fool according to his folly because he's not going to listen. You know, it's just like these general things. And then there are books like Job and Ecclesiastes that give us wisdom for when things aren't as they ought to be, when, when for all of the exceptions to the rules, we might say. And over and over again, we're seeing these people say things that are somewhat true. Like um, if you live sinfully, you're going to bear consequences for that sin. And that's generally true, but then they're extrapolating, okay, this guy has something that looks like consequences, therefore he sinned. And what we're learning here is that um, there, there are exceptions to the rules. Sometimes something looks like it's fitting the Proverbs of life, and it just doesn't. God's wisdom is bigger than that. And, and I think that's what we're getting a little bit of an insight into here. What do you think about that, AJ? I'm trying to think about it because the way I was thinking about it has been tweaked as we're talking. And so just processing that, like I can't respond this fast, which is bad for a podcast. <laughs> you didn't ask him that in the interview before you hired him for the podcast, Aaron? Just let it rip, though. We'll all learn in real time with you. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes also talks about wisdom in a way that's, like it, you said, granular, yeah. and it, you know, it's not, a, it's not systematic treatment of wisdom. Yep. 
but we still want to mine the scriptures for those granular wisdom lessons. And and it's almost like you need all of them. And the danger is to grab onto just one pixel of truth that can't light up the full picture. Because if you do that, then you're going to live your life according to just that piece of wisdom instead of the larger picture of wisdom. And then you're going to make false judgments like all of Job's friends are doing right now. So maybe that's a good lesson from the book is to say there are a lot of true things that Job's friends have said or generally proverbially wisdom, true kind of things, but the wrong application of truth. So you need the right truth in the right moment to discern Still feels wisdom. like it's a little bit more than that. I completely agree with that. Okay. But at the end of 28, it's talking about where wisdom can truly be found. And so I don't know if he's just talking about wisdom in general or if it's not directed directly at his friends because some of that is what would you would maybe call like true wisdom because all wisdom comes from God. But it seemed like the point of... 28 was that people were looking for wisdom in the wrong places. Like they were trying to mine it like Mm -hmm. gems and precious metals or whatever. But yeah, but isn't that what his friends are doing? We're digging into this aspect of why you're experiencing something. And we're trying to show you something you can't see, which is that you're a sinner and that's why you're experiencing this. So they're trying to reveal wisdom to Job as they dig in one direction but they're not going in the right way. They they need the fuller picture of God's wisdom to be able to instruct Job in his situation. Yeah, I feel like I'm just really bad at reading the Bible. Like I feel like I treat it like I'm like looking for a systematic treatment of wisdom or something and you, that's why why people pull a ton of verses out of context in Job like we talked about a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think you're bad at reading the Bible for whatever it's worth. No, no, I just mean like it's just tough to change, like shift my thinking into like when I read through, it's almost pulling, like I shouldn't read the the version of the Bible that has the verse numbers in there. You know what okay. I mean? Like that type yeah. of. Yeah, it changes the way you're. Right, I read it, it as a verse, like yeah. not, I should be reading it as a paragraph or as a yep. letter or yeah, I think that's right, because it, it would help us avoid um, misusing the Bible. So there was a verse that we came across this this reading, this week of our reading. Um, I Help me, it's the one that where Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Not to look. Yeah, not to look on a maid. Chapter 31, verse 1. So if you're reading, I have made a covenant with my eyes, how then could I look at a young woman. I have heard this verse used so many times in talking about moral purity, don't lust after women. Um, there's a whole program called Covenant Eyes that uses this verse as its its label. And I yeah. remember sitting in uh, like high school boys only chapel where we were called to make a covenant with our eyes, you know, not to ever look at a woman or something. And I I think that's fine to do to say I I God I do not want to lust after women I don't want to look at pornography help me not do this or something like that but but it's like verses I get that get pulled out and made its own thing and 
then when we read that verse in context, it is so hard to shift into the gear of understanding what Job is actually doing with that verse. So we've appropriated it. What was wow. I wonder if they're... I think they just lost their ping pong ball above us in the ceiling. Yeah. Yikes. Okay. So back to what I was saying, though. Um, if a ping pong ball falls out, we'll let everyone know. But but when we... So if we've appropriated a verse like that towards something that probably there are a lot of other verses in the Bible we could have used that are speaking more directly to warning people against sexual impurity or something. But if we've appropriated that and that's all the verse means to us, and then we find it finally in Job 31, it's really hard for us to shift and see what Job is doing with it. Because later on, he goes, verse 9, if my heart has gone astray over a woman, or I have lurked at my neighbor's door, so looking in at his neighbors, so kind of a voyeuristic sin, and then let my own wife grind grain for another man and um, let other men kneel down over her. Both of those are euphemisms. I was wondering for, about that. I, I think both are euphem, euphemisms. Why can't I speak clearly? For sexual intercourse. NLT and, is really nice. It just says, have other men sweep with my wife. Yeah. Oh. So it's like loaning her out. And then um, he he goes on and says, if I had done that, that would have been a disgrace. That would have been iniquity deserving of punishment. So it's almost like his friends are insinuating to him, dude, you've been sexually immoral. And he's telling him, no, I haven't. If I had, like, I would have deserved that punishment, but I haven't done that. That's not why all my kids are dead and my farm is destroyed. So, you know, because one of, I think I forget which verse it is, but one of his friends was like, your end will be with male cult prostitutes or, or something like that, someone who violates the wisdom of the Lord. And he's just defending his innocence here. But when we appropriate those verses in other sections it's like we can't imagine them outside of a talk to 15 year old boys on purity and it's really tough to trace the progression of job's thought yeah people should stop doing that using random bible verses as random headlines you know yeah again there's still value in meditating on scripture and letting the spirit you know just talking about the other side of this is yeah, be, still because the the story is bigger than the main point of right. Job, right? Yep. So there's still value in saying, okay, here's a guy who is suffering, but all in all, most Jews and biblical authors speak positively about him. What other virtues does he have? Well, this is one of them. Like when trouble came into his life, he could say it's not because I've brought it on myself through sexual impropriety. That's a good thing to be pursuing as a, a life of sexual purity. So we can gain that from him, even though that's not what this book is about. It's not about being sexually pure, but we can appropriate it that way, yeah. especially when it's such a catchy phrase. I've made a covenant with my eyes. Like that's very poetic, easy to use, and you can actually like turn it into business and make a lot of money off of people. Yeah, that's great. Anyways, uh, moving to First Corinthians. Paul has a warning against idolatry for us in 1 Corinthians 10. So I think it was when we're looking at 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is exhorting the Christians in Corinth not to participate in the the idolatrous temple worship, meat offered to idols in the temple. He's trying to tell them, in this chapter at least, that just like the ancient Israelites, you've experienced God's blessing. 
you've been baptized, you partake in the Lord's table. Just like the ancient Israelites, though, you can forfeit that blessing with sinful craving for meat offered in an idol temple and associating yourself with idol worship. So just like the Israelites, you need to flee idolatry to avoid God's judgment. I think that's what's going on in chapter 10. He, of course, goes on to give instructions for how to navigate the complex world of Corinth with the practices of meat offered to idols and then that meat later sold in temples. And he gives instructions. So like, you know, you need to seek the good of others, namely their spiritual vitality, but you can enjoy the gifts of God without being overly scrupulous. Um, And even as you do that, though, you should be concerned for the good of others. So it's like, be concerned for the good of others, but enjoy and don't be overly scrupulous, but in your enjoyment and your ability to receive all things from the Lord, also care about the good of others. Don't confuse them so that they think you can worship idols and worship Jesus. So ultimately, you need to seek the glory of God and the good of other people. So often we read 1 Corinthians 10.31, say, you know, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And we apply that in our daily life, which is good. Again, we're appropriating it for just general instruction, and that's fine. But in this context, he's saying, whether or not you eat meat that has once been offered to an idol, and whether or not you drink this wine, whatever you choose to do here, make sure that you're glorifying God and not allowing there to be any glory attributed to an idol. In uh, chapter 11, kind of like verses 27 through 32, um, it talks about uh, the Lord's Supper and participating. And it says something about participating in an unworthy manner and bringing weakness and illness upon yourself. Can you uh, elaborate on that a bit? And I guess my question is, I just remember as a kid, like the church I went to, I was I was like paranoid to do, like take communion because like the way they built it up was always like, oh my gosh, like I don't think I'm ever good enough to take communion, mm-hmm. and I feel like I'm going to take it in an unworthy manner and something bad's going to happen. Like I was always kind of like scared to take communion because they were like so like heavy handed about it, kind of. Yep. I don't know. So I don't know. I don't, and you know, obviously it's a much different uh, experience here or at other churches I've gone to, but like, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say if you're really interested in what I would say about this at a greater length, I preached a sermon at Redeemer Bible Church in Minnetonka the Sunday before the COVID shutdown. So this was like March, 2020 on this text where I explain this at a much greater length. But in short, what I would say is this phrase of taking in an unworthy manner is it's not saying taking as an unworthy person because all of us are unworthy participants in the Lord's Supper. We only participate in the Lord's Supper because we have been redeemed by Christ. None of us deserve to be there, so we're not worthy of being there. So it's not talking about the person, but the manner in which you do it. So the way that you take the Lord's Supper. And the unworthy manner in Paul's mind is what he just described earlier in chapter 11, where the rich people and the poor people are separated, and the rich people are eating their fill and having a good time, and they're highlighting their social status at the Lord's Supper, 
and discriminating against the poor people. So instead of recognizing we're all one in Christ, they were making divisions among them. So to participate in an unworthy manner is to take the Lord's Supper while looking down your nose at somebody else because they aren't as cool as you, or to set up the way you take it so that the the wealthy and the most spiritual of people in the church have a better experience of the Lord's Supper than somebody else. Mm. So it has nothing to do with the dad and mom who were like frustrated with each other as they were like trying to get the kid unstuck from the car seat on the way into the church. And then they like sat down and heard a sermon and now they're about to take the Lord's Supper and they haven't been able to apologize to each other for being frustrated with each other. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the way the church as a whole is relating to one another as they come to the table. Okay, that helps. Also, I thought you were going to say, if you want to hear my long version of this answer, I can send you a Marco Polo. <laughs> <laughs> if I had Marco Polo, that would be the way to do it. Yeah. So I think there are ways that our church could take of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, but because we don't do a full meal, our situation is just a little bit different. You know, so in this ancient world, probably the elites, the wealthy people are already there while the day laborers are coming late to this evening gathering, that's probably starting with the Lord's Supper. That's starting with a meal capped off with the Lord's Supper. And these wealthy people are eating all the best of the food and not waiting for or welcoming the poor people. Um, they're probably out in the atrium while the rich people are in this smaller room in this house church. So these distinctions were made in a different way than it would even be possible for us to do in the way we have our corporate gatherings. But we could probably say, man, if our church is really fractured over an issue, let's say we were trying to appoint a new pastor and half the church really wanted it, him, and the other half didn't, and then now we're all mad at each other. Probably coming to the Lord's Supper, like hating everyone in the room, is a bad way. That That's probably a lot closer to what he's talking about than being frustrated with your spouse because it was a tough morning getting the kids to church. Yeah, so I don't know, AJ, what you think about that interpretation of this text, but this is one of the reasons that we don't have that like weird, hey, everyone, take five minutes and confess all of your sins before we come to the table, in part because we have like a corporate confession where we're praying a prayer of confession together in the service already, but also because that's not actually what Paul is getting at here. Right. I've always appreciated when you've said that a lot of times when you think you shouldn't partake is when you actually need to the most. Mm -hmm. And so you should be experiencing the benefits of... Yeah, exactly. I, and I maybe I'm overstating this. I don't think I am, though. But I, I would say that someone should never choose not to partake in the Lord's Supper apart from the voice of the church, either through pastoral counsel or through church discipline. So you don't get to decide, I'm not going to come to the family meal like if you if you have your kids at home and they're like, nope, I don't really love you guys as much as I should, so I'm just not going to come to dinner tonight. Be like, no, you don't get to decide that. And they're not going to love us anything yeah. anymore by you're, not being with you're us. You're cutting yourself away. off yeah. from the thing that Paul says makes you one body because there's one bread. Exactly. So it, it does something. So I want to tell people, hey, if you are thinking you shouldn't partake in the Lord's Supper, you should talk to your pastors about that if for no other reason, because 
if there's something in your life that would keep you from the Lord's Supper, that's probably something you need pastoral counsel for. But then more, you know, at a church theology level, you shouldn't take that decision into your hands not to come to the table. That's Christ calling you to the table, unless Christ's body, the church, excommunicates you from the table. Come and participate in communion. Yeah, I I would want that person to come to the table and know that Christ died and shed his blood for that sin too. And for whatever qualms that person has, when they feel comfortable around Jesus, we might say, it's like the sinners in the Gospels who would eat with Jesus. They they would probably feel uncomfortable with this guy who is this holy, righteous dude, and, and they're confessing and repenting. Well, when you come to the table, you should probably feel like, man, I am sinful and I need Jesus. And as those things go through your head, that's a good reminder. I should get some help. I should talk to other people in our church, talk to pastors. I've got an issue and I need to deal with it. Someday I would like to do a Bible class on the Lord's Supper for like a year. A year, seriously. Eight to 12 weeks, I think, would be sufficient to do theology and practice of the Lord's Supper. I think it would be really enriching and delightful. Thank you for joining us on week 36 of Reading Through the Bible Whoa. Here with Jesus. You're not going to ask about head coverings? I thought AJ I thought had prepped for something on head coverings for us. Should I not be wearing a hat right now? Or should you guys be wearing a hat right now? So is it head coverings in worship, right? Oh. Or is it all the time? I think we're talking about worship, right? I think we're talking particularly about worship, congregational worship, in a setting where someone will be in public, they should not do something that would draw attention to themselves. I think that's the principle if we want to look at it that way. So a woman without a head covering while she's praying and prophesying where is this again? Chapter 11, 1 through 16. So the, the woman is to have her head covered while she's praying and prophesying in the assembly. Because not having it covered is going to bring attention to herself and not to God because of probably whatever cultural, historical cultural background issues are there. But here, here we're talking about like cultural... Yep. gender distinctions. Yeah, right? so yeah, so I think when I preach this, the way I applied it is like, why well, I, I don't know if I applied it this way or not. But guys can wear hats while they're praying. That's fine. You know, I grew up being like, oh, if you wear your hat while you're praying or re- something, you're sinning. I, I don't think that's true. But I think if I started wearing a baseball cap at our church on a Sunday morning while I'm preaching, that's going to just be distracting. You know, like I never do that. I never wear hats unless I'm exercising. So it would just be weird. Um, and, and it would probably just draw attention to me. That's why like, I don't want to ever do a big style change on a Sunday. I'm going to preach. So Kate and I were walking around Kohl's and there was this shirt that we thought Matthew would probably buy if he were with us. That was very flowery, but also it looked like it was from the seventies. And I was like, I think I would wear that just around the office because it's so out of character for me. And Kate was like, well, why don't you just wear it tomorrow? Like, well, because I'm preaching and teaching like this would just draw attention to me more than it would do anything else. So I think that like the kind of thing Paul is getting at here, I would be guilty of violating by wearing something so out of character for me on a Sunday. But I'd also say like if a woman's doing scripture reading or praying, she could 
dressed in a way that could be really distracting. And, you know, like that's not the Sunday for you to wear your fanciest outfit to draw attention to yourself. Like it's fine to dress up for church or whatever, but like whether it's a thing that would be more revealing or just more flashy, like don't, don't draw attention to yourself. Like don't use this opportunity where you're in front of everyone to draw all the attention to you. And I need to think about that on Sundays. Like, and that's why I dress the way I do every other day of the week, jeans and a button up. I don't look different to anybody than any other time they see me. So I shouldn't wear my cowboy hat to church. I, I not, if you're praying or playing music, don't wear it up front. Okay. Okay. I have a pretty sweet outfit though. And if you do wear it while you're just attending on a Sunday, make sure you sit in the back row because you're already taller than everybody. But like when you sit, no one will be able to see anything. But I'd say like if you wore your birthday suit, that St. Patrick suit, what's that birthday suit? What? I don't, that's a suit that he wears on wear his clothes. birthday. Oh, okay. Yeah, my he's bir- yeah my sh- yeah my shamrock suit is yeah. my birthday suit because my birthday's on St. Patrick's I was, Day. Sorry, I interrupted you, but I wanted to make sure that was clear. Oh, what we were talking about. Oh, oh, I get it. Okay, yeah, different kind of birthday suit. Yeah, on his birthday, he has this green St. Patrick's Day suit. Like if you wore that on a day you were reading scripture, that that would just be distracting from the word of the Lord, and we don't want to do that. So that's kind of how I take this text, so even I, though it's an extremely challenging one. If I wore my sweet Southwestern outfit, would that be Dude, again, you could wear that on a Sunday, just not when you're reading and praying. Or Why is it being, extremely challenging? Like, it seems like, yeah, there's it. probably some debate, but... So it's it's challenging because we don't know if any of this is a quotation from one of the Corinthian letters. So we don't know if Paul is saying something or if he's quoting the Corinthians. Mm-hmm. You know, So when he says that um, the man is the head of woman, God is the head of Christ, and he goes on, oh, where's the one, the glory of man? Woman is the glory of man. It's got to be further down. Yeah. Anyway, there are phrases in there where it's like, it's like is, is Paul affirming this? Yes, woman is the glory of man. And man is the image and glory of God. Is Paul quoting something they've said, or is Paul affirming this? Right, that's, that's a big difference. That is really, really challenging. Okay. It's kind of like that um, phrase: "It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman," you know, yep, or so. the body will be destroyed. You know, like all of these things. It's really tough, and it changes the way you interpret a text. And then there are challenges: Is Paul talking about a like? head covering as in fabric or just long hair and short hair, you know? So there's that issue. And then culturally, what is long and short hair? Right. And then um, you have a couple other issues there as well, but on the whole, because we need to get going there, there it's just riddled with difficulty. And I've changed my mind on how to interpret this text like three or four times. But in the end, I keep coming back to the main point I would say is don't do anything in the gathered worship that would draw attention to yourself. And in every culture, that could be something different, which means we adapt even within our culture to what is more normal, we might say, what might be more common, so we're not drawing attention to ourselves. Yeah, so in chapter 12, talks about spiritual gifts. 
Which is something Paul's been talking about, right? In this letter about, mm-hmm. you know, one of you is the, the arm and one of you is the foot and the, the heart or whatever. You yeah. Know, just different parts. There's different gifts. Paul says to, you know, there's a lot of ones that are maybe more flashy, but it's just he tells you to dev- to desire the most helpful ones or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and is exactly that you, you know what's interesting to me on this is that he, I, I don't know if it's our English translations. I can't recall what, what the Greek was, but I think it gets obscured a little bit, but he talks about how there are certain members that need more honor than the others. The ones we hide the, away. Yeah, and, um, you know, we know he's talking about our anatomical features that need to be covered up, but there is also, like, if you reflect on this metaphor a little bit more, it is interesting that those members which are needed for procreation in life are the things that are often needing to be more hidden and less apparent. And I think there's a little bit of a lesson for us in that there are people in the in churches who feel like they have nothing to contribute, but if they could only see things from a bigger perspective— they're the people who are maybe contributing the most to the life of the church just by being there and being a person who loves other people, you know, these things that we're all called to do. And we need to give them honor and care. And I I just want to say to you, anyone who feels like I'm useless, I have nothing to offer or to contribute, you're probably contributing way more than you realize. And then to someone who would say, well, I want to be doing the most flashy things, I just say that that I think I get that desire, but as soon as you're in that spot, there is so much pressure there, and you can't be everything that w- it would take to be that flashy person and actually add life to the church. I mean, I think even in my experience of being a man of the cloth here, like I th- I think there was a lot of hesitation going into being a pastor, but and everyone saying all pastors are big-headed, they just want to be on stage and all these things. But my experience of being a pastor has been every time I say something, even if I'm trying to help people, I know someone's not going to like something I said, and someone else will love the thing that someone else hated. And the next week, it will be the opposite. Like, even if you think the more prominent position you're in, all that does is invite more criticism. It actually isn't that great. Um so it's almost self-defeating to be pursuing the more public realms of service, in my opinion. I thought it was helpful to just narrow in on something that you said, you know, just show up and love people. Like, mm-hmm. I think if everybody did that, you know, we wouldn't, you know, or at least if the Corinthians did, you know, they wouldn't have needed this letter. Yeah. And yeah. so it's instructive for us to do that for not just the church, but you know, whatever arena it is, whoever you encounter, you know, try to love them the way Christ has loved you because you didn't deserve that love and neither do these other people. Yeah. We're representing Christ and that's how we should be. Yeah. Just, just to show up and be present for other people instead of for yourself. I think if everyone does that at Resurrection Church, we will be a happy and holy church. Um, But all of us come thinking of ourselves, you know, we all do this sometimes, not every time, but we all do it more often than we'd like to. And we need to, I think every church needs to keep growing to love one another, like Paul was saying here. Thank you for once again joining us. 
here on the Resurrection Church Podcast, reading through the Bible in a year. If you would like any more information about our lovely church, visit our website at resurrectionmn.org.